You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. We're back for part two of my discussion with the super thoughtful Turd Meester. In this second part interview, we pick up where we left off last week and we go deep into Tur's latest report on why right now in particular is a great time to be a Bitcoin bull. He talks about numerous on-chain metrics and circumstances happening in the macro backdrop that only contribute to the bullish narrative. And Tur's pretty good at making calls like this in the past. He's been uh, in the space for a very long time and has made these bullish calls at uh, bear market bottoms. And so right now he's doing that again. So without further delay, here's the rest of my chat with Tur Demeester. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by the Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Okay, let's talk about this next one here. And I think this is a really important one. You say collaborative custody is a good option for novice investors. And you get into the, uh, this is near the end of your report. You're talking about the various ways that people can custody Bitcoin. And you do such a great job kind of talking about the different types of people and how they need to think about their technical competence in order to custody Bitcoin. So talk to us a little bit about these ideas. Yeah, thanks. And I appreciate that you, I I value your opinion. I'm glad you liked it because it's really important. Like I wrote this report with like my own friends and family in mind. I've been doing this for 12 years now, Bitcoin analysis, and uh, a lot of things can go wrong and it's tricky. There are a lot of different ways to think about storing Bitcoin and they each have trade-offs, but I feel like, like you're saying, the most positive trade-offs or the, the best balance is that collaborative custody model because basically you can store your bitcoins yourself with one key which is kind of vulnerable because if if one person sees your private key then they're gone that's called the evil maid attack right somebody just glances at the at the wrong piece of paper and and they're, they're gone it's not 100% like that but that that's roughly the risk factor and then you can also just say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to bother doing it myself. I, I'm a beginner. I'm just going to give it to an exchange, a Bitcoin bank. But then, of course, since 2021, we've seen a lot of things can go wrong. We've seen these uh, Bitcoin banks can go belly up. They don't have FDIC insurance. And you're kind of looking at a black box. like You don't really mm-hmm. know how they handle things inside. And then you can also do multi-sig storage, which is better, but it's more involved, like having multiple keys and then those work together to secure your Bitcoin and maybe you give some to a friend and you give another one to, you know, but, but that's like, that's the kind of more thing that hardcore Bitcoiners tend to do because you have a network of people that are literate in the same way. And so collaborative custody is that same technology of multi-sig, basically multiple key storage, but you have a company that assists you in doing it. And uh, I think that's really powerful because like I said earlier, I was talking about Miniscript, like this technology keeps improving. Like we're starting to have uh, delay mechanisms built in. It's just so powerful what you can do now. And so these companies are going to k- compete with each other and going to keep, you know, kind of helping you upgrade your system, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have someone that's going to upgrade it. The moment that it's stable and safe enough, they're going to, you know, just ask you like, hey, do you want to upgrade? And you'll do it together and be very simple. And so the nice thing is you don't even have to trust them, right? Because they are only storing one key of yours. Maybe there's another key in another company and then you have one key or you have one key who's with a family member. And soon there'll probably be like, I've seen some demos that are so powerful where you, if you're all part, you're all customers of the same company, the company doesn't know the private keys, by the way, they don't know it, but they just built an interface where you and I can communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And so I can ask you like, Hey, Preston, I know you're a customer with the same company. Would you be willing to store a key for me? And you're like, sure. And I just send you with one click of the button, a request and you see this and you're like, accept requests. So that kind of collaboration is going to become so much easier than fiddling with some kind of obscure open source interface that, that is hard to understand. So, so this is so exciting. And yeah, just I don't know, it's a long-winded answer to, just to say, yes, I think collaborative custody is probably, probably the best solution for 95% of, of new, new adopters of Bitcoin. I love this point. And I think that in the coming two to three years, this is going to be a major shift 
technical shift that we have not seen to date. And I think a lot of it comes down to the Fediment protocol. If you, I don't know how well-versed you are on the Fediment protocol and some of the work that's happening there, but exactly like you say. So I look at my personal family, right? And I look at my grandparents and their ability or just other family members that in their technical competence to wrap their head around storing their own keys and doing it in a multi-sig kind of way. And I'm saying to myself, there's just no way. There's no way they, they're they going to be able to wrap their head around some of this. And when I... Even just remember the passwords, things like yeah, that, right? Yeah. And just out of the mindset that, oh, there's some type of central entity that can kind of unlock my my account, right? Like, I think we are still very much in that line of thinking and the world is is aggressively moving out in a different way, but it's going to be really hard for most to kind of overcome that way of thinking that they're so used to. Yeah, I guess from Fediment... By the way, this this is how Bitcoin becomes unconfiscatable because yeah. if you have a an external party who's trying to get hold of your Bitcoin, say, you know, say a government who's trying to confiscate your Bitcoin, you can have it be that if Bitcoin, the Bitcoins in a certain account don't move because they've confiscated your key, right? One of the keys and you cannot sign. This is smart contracts, by the way. This is a smart contract where after a certain amount of time, those Bitcoin automatically move to another address that's controlled mm-hmm. by a company who might be abroad somewhere mm-hmm. who specialize in this kind of stuff. Like, and then, you know, and there may be the custody insurer or something like that. And then this is not just pie in the sky. Like you can build this stuff today. I was talking to Obi, uh, who's the CEO founder of uh, Fetty, which is using the Fediment protocol to do some of these things. And he used to run an exchange and he was telling me just like how exchanges manage their treasury of Bitcoin and having multiple people handle various keys. So it's a multi-sig solution. And then the other people don't know who the other participants are that are holding keys. You know, you used to do this physically with gold vaults and things like that with multiple keys in order to unlock a vault and you didn't know who the people were that were holding it. And he showed me a demo on their app and how they're basically able to do this for, you know, let's say you set it up for your family and you're able to provide one key, the person can accept it all through the app. The person doesn't actually know what the key says because the key's encrypted. Right. And they're distributing it across however, you know, they want it three of five or whatever, and how many, how many keys they want to hold versus the ones that they're providing to family members. And he's showing this to me on the app. And I looked at him and I was like, is this a better solution than what you were doing? Like when you were running an exchange, is this more turnkey, but yet almost at the same security level or better than the security level? And he just kind of smiled and looked at me and nodded like, yep. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, this is going to be huge. This is going to be crazy. And I have to I have to disclose something. So I'm a part of uh, advisor on ego death, and that's one of their investments. So all of that aside, but I'm bringing it up because I completely agree with your point that I think technically this is something that the world needs in order to continue to take self custody, but also bridge the technical gap that so many people in the world just cannot even begin to to bridge based off of their expertise and and them just not having any type of technical competence in this area. Right. And and if we think about the internet, like what what created the 1995 moment where all of a sudden regular people were just going to the store, buying a box, putting it in their house and and going online is is because all these parts had been developed to a maturity that was just enough to provide for a seamless pretty seamless uh customer experience and i think that is where we're at with bitcoin mm-hmm. 2023 2024 is going to be the 1995 moment i believe yeah as, as far as channel management so when we go into layer 2 and you're talking about channel management do you have any type of uh centralization concerns when we talk about you know, I'll, I'll provide an example. So like Wallet of Satoshi, when I'm using that with Noster and just looking at the ease of sending five sats to somebody or 20,000 sats to somebody, it just works. It's super fast. The app immediately pulls up. I click send and like, boom, it, the, the screen turns green, but I'm not self-custodying it. When I do my own self-custody, I just don't get the speed. And maybe that's, again, going back to technical competence. It might be on my end. I'm sure there's some really smart technical people that get the immediate feedback. But whenever 
I was doing it on my own. It just wasn't as fast as using Wallet of Satoshi. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll throw $300 on Wallet of Satoshi and kind of use that to zap some sats around in a really fast and effective way that I just don't have to think about channel management. But is that a centralization concern is really kind of the question, Tur. I think there are, yeah, there are for sure some concerns. And I think there's always going to be that friction where if you run your own node, you can't really provide the same, have the same nice experience as a company that does nothing but that and has lots of users. Kind of like maybe there's an analogy with uh, with email, right? In the beginning, people thought everybody would run their, run their own email server. And then it's like, no, no, no. What happened is certain companies specialized and those became the dominant email providers. I think um, it's likely we're going to head that way. But I don't know enough about it. seems to be that because Bitcoin is an open protocol that you can really build things, build infrastructure for people who don't want that, who are willing to. And, and also it's different, you know, changing email might be, there might be more friction involved than changing your lightning provider. So maybe the competition is just going to be more fierce, which is good for the consumer. And also fundamentally, it doesn't really worry me even if there are issues there because, you know, the base layer is decentralized. The base layer is not going to be, you know, attacked. And so, yeah, of course, if basically your wallet can get stolen, right? It's like 200 bucks in your wallet. It's just a risk. That, that's, that's cash for you. That's just what happens with cash. But if your money is safe in the bank, that, that's the main thing that we got to worry about. So, and I think people are, are going to be just less concerned about lightning stuff for a long time because it's only a small part of their Bitcoin experience or yeah. their Bitcoin portfolio, so to speak. And it's becoming so seamless. It's becoming so right. seamless. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like, and then you can be like, oh, I have $2,000 worth of uh, Bitcoin in my lightning wallet. Let's sweep some in cold storage. So you just move it to a safer place. Yeah, it's funny. We were talking about fees when we started off and like all this like layer one fees. And it's like, I could send you 10,000 sats right now and there's basically no fees associated with any of it, right? And so people that are maybe new and showing up to these conversations and hearing us talk about that, like, well, how is that possible? <laughs> they just said the fees were yeah, really high, right? Incredible. It's crazy. Somebody, do you remember that uh, there was a little competition? They had a, they had a prize for whoever managed to send the smallest lightning transaction in, mm. in terms of amount. Yeah. And I forget the, the, the Bitcoin amount. It was like fractions of a Satoshi, which is like, you know, a billionth of a Bitcoin or something. And somebody calculated that that amount was less than the price you'd have to pay for one grain of sand if you order like a bulk amount of sand. <laughs> So anyway, it's just like mind blowing to think like these are the the quantities that that Bitcoin can facilitate the Bitcoin network. For people that don't run their own node or open their own channels, the fees. So you are collecting fees on layer two lightning, but they're fractions of a Satoshi. They are so small that like you truly don't even notice it, right? Because they're so small. Okay. So when I was down at the MicroStrategy conference last week, we sat on a panel. It was Jeff Booth, Lynn Alden. It was awesome. The, the panel discussion was in reference to the, the future and kind of the, where we see things going on the Lightning Network, specifically on Layer 2. And the comment that I had was I was really excited about the potential for the cost of capital, the risk-free, the quote-unquote risk-free rate really materializing on the Lightning Network. I believe you and I have been talking about this for a few years. Now there's this thing called Magma uh, Marketplace. This is on the Amboss uh, website, where literally there's a free and open market for people to purchase liquidity on layer two. Do you think that with enough time, five, 10 years, that this really kind of materializes into a free and open market for a risk-free rate? And if so, what, what do you think that number goes to? Yeah, I think Nick Batia first, uh, you know, came up with the, the concept because uh, he came from the the bond market from that kind of world. I think it's valid. I think that, of course, technically there's never total freedom of risk, but there are certain risks that become very manageable over time uh, because they're based on such robust mechanisms that they're basically just creating a price for however low your time preference is. Like you're going to get rewarded for that. And so basically you, you can lend to lightning providers and they can kind of almost guarantee you that you're going to get your loan back. I don't really know. Honestly, I don't know in terms of numbers what that's going to be. 
But I do think that it's not going to be just Lightning where you can lend Bitcoin to reliably. I think there's also going to be a growing market. I think it's going to be a huge market for Bitcoin insurance, Bitcoin custody insurance in the first place, and then eventually it'll go into other areas. But because of these, we were talking about Fediment and uh, Miniscript and, and these very sophisticated, almost like three-dimensional custody models, you can make custody extremely secure, which means that to ensure the custody of Bitcoins can also become very, very reliable. And then, but investors still need a pool of money to pay out in the case of a loss. So you can invest in that pool. And the nice thing is with these new mechanisms is you don't even need to trust the uh, insurance company. Like they don't actually hold the Bitcoin in the sense that Coinbase holds your Bitcoin. The, the stuff that they're insuring, they, can, they just have the power, the veto power to prevent the Bitcoins from being spent for the period of the insurance. So you're insuring for three months, that period, they can lock it up, but they don't have the power to send it wherever they want. They can just prevent it from being spent. So, so I think that is going to be a huge area of um, potential investment where you can generate Bitcoin alpha for, big, for Bitcoin savers. Hmm. That is really a fascinating idea. I never thought of it from a multi-sig where maybe, so they're, what, you're, what you're suggesting is they're holding a key, the insurance company is holding a key and they have an ability for, for that particular wallet that it's three of three or like how, how would that technically work to... Yeah, technically, the demo I've seen is basically you have a regular multi-sig wallet that's, who knows, three out of five or something. And then it's almost like there's an, it's almost like you're building a logical circuit. And so you, you add an and. So it's like, mm. we need this condition first, three out of five, and we need an additional signature at the end. And that can also be a multi-sig within the insurance company. It's just, they also need a quorum to then finally release the Bitcoin. And then that and has, yeah, and the and would have a time duration that after so many blocks, it's not valid anymore. And it verifiably, verifiably expires. So you know that if this insurance company goes bust or Mm -hmm. whatever, the Bitcoin are going to get unlocked again after that period of time. Wow. So it's, it's like, imagine like not having to trust your insurance company is huge. Do you have any other, like uh, from an innovation standpoint in the coming five years that you think maybe the rest of the market isn't necessarily seeing or that you think is going to play a, a major role moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I keep hammering on insurance. It's just, it, it feels like people are not seeing it still. Like, you mm. know, you and I have talked, I think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin-based life insurance, uh, th- those kind of ideas. Uh, I think it's going to be in the realm of financialization that we'll see these innovations where it's like, oh, but I thought this is how it's done. And it turns out we can do it way more reliably with Bitcoin. I think that that'll be a theme over and over. I also think that derivatives are, are a valuable thing, are, are important for people to manage risk and, and those kind of things. So that'll, that'll happen. I mean, I mean, just financially speaking, a lot of assets can be shorted against Bitcoin. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Right. Where, where like if you see things you don't like, you can just kind of build some short exposure against your, your Bitcoin position. And uh, and in a way, you're pushing the market to where it needs to go or where fraud is being stamped out and things like that. In the 80s, there were a lot of short hedge funds because the money was strong and it made sense to short against the dollar. So now we're entering a new era where we have another strong money. And so some of these excesses that we've seen. Part of why they're there is because they can just proliferate and they're not being punished. Like we need a financial predator to be able to like kind of cull the the population of, so to speak, of of these, uh, you know, fraudulent organisms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. 
That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. What are your thoughts on... So AI has just been nuts in the past year. It's, it's gotten a little crazy. How does this... It, it almost seems like these two worlds are about to collide between Bitcoin, immediate settlement, lightning, and all the resourcing that's required from a computation standpoint for AI. What are your thoughts around that? Maybe this goes back to like reading Ray Kurzweil back in 2005, I think, where he was talking about, you know, the, the singularity and, and kind of just that, that organic evolution towards uh, hyperintelligence that has gone on for many hundreds of years, thousands of years, in his opinion. So I don't have that fear of like, oh my God, like, what is this? And, and I also always think in markets, like even when you're thinking about governments, like governments compete with each other, like there is that political market. We don't have a world government. I don't think we'll ever have one. And so it doesn't make sense to me to make an abstraction of AI and be like, the AI is going to take over. Like, no, they're going to compete with each other. There's going to be a multitude of, of AIs. And I was talking to Dhruv Bansal about this. He's the CTO at Unchained. And he and I are actually doing a panel at the, in Miami. So I'm kind of like spilling the beans a little bit because he has such a fascinating take on this. His take is that the AI world is an ecosystem. It's going to be an ecosystem. And the way that you see boundaries between organisms, like how, how do you, because they're going to interface with each other. And in the, in the real world, well, there's, you know, you have cells and cells have uh, walls. And then that's how, of course, physical animals have, you know, they have skin. And, the, and so like, what is going to be the boundary between AIs like, and to prevent them from just being a, a blob that doesn't know how to allocate resources? And he's saying that the food that they need is CPU. They need to you know, have that electricity to run the machines. And also the re- machines need to be replaced. So they need to interface with the real world somehow. They need to be able to basically bargain for more electricity or more CPUs. They're going to have to trade with us, basically. And we, we cannot outthink them. They're probably going to become smarter than us, but we could trade with them. And uh, the most likely currency is going to be Bitcoin because they can... How do you know the difference between one AI organism from the other is that one knows the private key and the other one doesn't. So you can always... They can even check for themselves, like, are you a part of me or not? It's like, hey, can you sign this message? And then if they can, it means they don't have access to the consciousness that you do as an AI. So it's just this, he has this fascinating take. It's, it's much more elaborate than that. 
But uh, that, yeah, basically, Bitcoin could be this peaceful technology that allows us to coexist and thrive together as an AI slash human society. We talked about this a little bit earlier about how it's changing from being an expert of borrowing to being an expert of not borrowing and having uh, already settled monetary value and retaining that. And when I think about what you're talking about, AIs bargaining, working with each other in harmony to become smarter, they're going to have to settle with something immediately. They're not going to want to accept some coupon for future payment. They're going to want to, hey, I want to task you with doing something and it Mm -hmm. only costs seven cents. And I don't want a high fee on paying that seven cents for you to solve whatever this small processing is. They want to immediately settle that. Right. And so like, yeah, and also because if you trust, if you trust one party to provide something to you in the future, you don't have the option of opting out. And an AI is going to know that it's better to have optionality than to be stuck with one provider. Yeah. So it almost seems like it's going to force AI to settle in lightning because they can do it at a, for two points, really, because it can immediately settle. They're going, it's going to receive that buying power right now. And it can do it in, in a very low cost where there's effectively no fee kind of way. And you can't do that in traditional rails where I can send you seven cents or I can send you 15 cents and it, there's no fee associated with such a small settlement. But yet I can still collect the resourcing of the, the processing of such a small micro payment that's immediately settled. And then you get that symbiosis, symbiosis between two very different species, like you see yes. in nature, like between like mushrooms and trees. And the mushrooms they gather the the minerals, and then the tree provides the through photosynthesis provides the I believe is the glucose and things like that. And so then you have that you know they, they both become better because of it, even though they're totally different species. Well, and, and so, we're so already the AI seeing is going to work for us, right? The AI is going to provide us with services that we're going to pay them sats for and then they'll use that to then purchase uh, electricity and cpu well in turn you're already seeing so like elon musk is saying oh chat gpt is too left-leaning or too liberal we need one that's more conservative right. and so like yeah. when i think of so now we have these two different ais let's say they're total powerhouses they're gonna be smarter if you mix them Right, they're going to be there, and this if is they to can your talk point. To each other, yeah, they, if they yeah. can talk to each other and settle to just see a more holistic viewpoint. So how how are they going to pay for that energy expense from one to the other? I don't know. I think it's going there. It's interesting. I had a chat again last week with some some really smart folks, and we were talking about how there's going to be huge demand potentially in the global south for immediate settlement because so many of these currencies are a disaster. And the one person looked at me and just kind of like smirked, kind of like, okay, that's a cool story. That's a cool narrative that people are sharing. But his opinion was the bigger use for immediate settlement and lightning is AI. And yeah, it's had my mind kind of had my mind kind of racing ever since he, he said that to me. But well, yeah, I spoke to someone who's at, uh, at Microsoft recently. And I mean, he's saying they're just buying these insane amounts of uh, CPU. Like it, it's, it's like, um, not, I mean, not just really a weapon. It's a technological race. You know, mm-hmm. they're really, it's a, it's a race. And so that's why these political statements, I just don't listen to like, oh, we should pause development and blah, blah. It's just, no, the world is an anarchy on a global level. And so if you're, if the good guys are like, ooh, we're going to pause it, some other guys are going to keep developing it. it. It doesn't make sense to me to do that, but it is, it's going to be a big change. Yeah, for sure. We didn't even talk about this yet, but this is huge. All the banking fiasco that's going on right now. In your report, you say a global macro predicament is a powerful tailwind for Bitcoin. And I would say at the center of all of this is this looming uh, debt ceiling, uh, which, you know, if, it, if it's not resolved politically, could really express itself uh, through all these bank failures, just uh, enhance all these bank failures that we're seeing because their ability to step in and just provide liquidity on a whim is the only thing that's kind of keeping things somewhat stable at this point. So how do you see this kind of playing out into the next, I think, the coming two quarters? And where does this end? I remember back in 20... This is back around when we had the 
sovereign debt crisis in Europe back in, I believe it was 2012-ish. So kind of like in the wake of the 2008, I was like, oh, and two, when you, I lived in Europe back then in Belgium. And so the general feeling was like, oh, we had this big crisis across the pond and you know they're, they're in trouble. And of course, yeah, we had some banking problems, but we fixed it. And then we had the pigs countries like Portugal and, and Italy and, and the Southern European countries who all of a sudden got really in trouble because the interest rates are going up on their debt. So anyway, in that period, you saw on the level of the BIS, and then there was the, this new entity called the Financial Stability Board was uh, um, started, and then the IMF as well. They were starting to really think about, okay, what are we going to do if 2008 hits again and people call our bluff, right? We're like, they just assume we're going to bail everything out. We can't keep doing this. And they started working on these bail-in regimes. And I've been keeping track of that over the years. It's been 10 years now. And like a lot of these, a lot of the stuff has basically been codified. And then a bail-in just means that instead of rescuing the bank from the outside, we're going to apply haircuts and we're going to decide, you know, we're going to do a controlled bankruptcy. And that's what we saw with, uh, of course, when the Cyprus crisis happened, that was a test that was back in 2013, which surged. It was a contributing factor to a Bitcoin rally as well. But so this is now happening on a very large scale with Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, and these other banks where, yes, they are rescuing the deposit holders so far. We'll have to see because I think the next step is going to be more like Argentina, where they, they corral the money for a certain amount of time. They won't let you pull it out. If you look at M2, the, the decline, which is, by the way, I got this from Hugh Hendry. I think he's right. But when you see the decline in M2, it's like, it, that's mostly deposits. So you're seeing deposits fleeing. It's like, I don't know, I don't know want to draw the Ethereum analogy, but it's like basically deposits are fleeing and people are investing in short dated bonds and money markets and stuff like that. And so they're going to want to stem that flow. So they're going to want to hold the cash somehow in the banking system. So anyway, long story short, I think for in shareholders of banks, for people that have bonds that are in banks or that have lent money to banks, or people that have deposits in banks, all that stuff is going to become toxic. It's just a matter of time. I mean, I guess, sorry, you were talking about the next two quarters. I think the bank runs are going to continue. And I think the interventionism is going to get heavier and heavy handeder. And I think the Fed is going to turn around. You know, once, once this crisis, we, we have a few more bank runs. I think uh, Silicon Valley Bank had like a $42 billion bank run in one day. Like this is the iPhone era. You can just be like, boom, I'm out of here. I don't, I don't want it anymore. That's different from 1930s. You know, these things can happen really fast. And I think the Fed is going to pivot. And then people are going to understand like it's QE forever. I think inflation could be back by the end of the year. And I think that could very well coincide with a huge rally in Bitcoin. Because people are going to remember 2020. We had big inflation in 2020. They're turning on the spigot. Is that how you say it? Turning on the spigots? Like yeah. you, you like, yeah, open the faucet and uh, the next thing is going to be inflation again. That's a really contrarian yeah. take that you think we could see inflation ramping up by the end of this year. I think um, so. I mean, this is the thing that I just, I cannot. Sorry, sorry, just to kind of like, just yeah. to like make sure I, I say it right. I mean, inflation in the stuff people need, not yes. in the stuff they want, right? We can see flatline stocks or terribly performing stocks while corn and oil and all that is spiking and, and copper. Yeah, I think that's such an important point to, to make that delineation between things that people actually desire, which goes back to that quote that I recently, uh, or that I said earlier in the show. Something I think that also that's lost on people is the sheer size of the bank bailouts that have happened just this year in 2023 exceed the amount of the 2008 crisis. Even corrected for CPI inflation. Yes. That's nuts because you're not, you have no, oh, I don't want to say no, but I think if you talk to a hundred people on the street, they wouldn't even know any of it really has even happened. Where I think back in 2009, everybody knew. Every single person that you'd talk to was talking about this. And now today it's even larger and the only people talking about it are the people creating media around it, like us, right? Like, I don't know. I think it's a really big deal. And I think that nothing has been solved. Like you saw the Jamie Diamond, uh, Jim Cramer, that the system's very, very stable as they bailed out. What was the one that they just recently bailed out? First Bank, I think it was. And JP Morgan goes in there and buys it. It's a huge boon for them. And it just seems like disasters right around the corner. But I also have an appreciation for 
how it always can kind of seem like disasters right around the corner. And I don't really know like yeah, right. where we're at in space and time. But yeah, there were people who were calling for $5,000 gold way back in 1980, right? Yeah, it's true. Like the, the inertia is something that you kind of have to learn to deal with as an investor. Like it's not because you're seeing that there's a problem that everybody is seeing the same thing. But at the same time, like the jerkiness, mm-hmm. to me, that is a big sign that the wheels are starting to fly off. There's kind of panicky, these, these panicky interventions. And, um, and, the, and also the cohesion politically, like within Europe and within these like multinational organizations, the cohesion is not, is not there anymore. Like you're, you're starting to see um, a lot of shifting alliances pretty quickly. I don't know. It's, it's, I've been, it's, it's the same with predicting what was going to be the top of the Bitcoin rally in 2021. Mm-hmm. How do you know? How do you predict the top of exuberance, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same with this. Like, how do you predict when the inertia is going to break? I don't know. Like, how do you know when the forest is going to, you know, light on fire and it's going to go from manageable to uncontrollable? But, uh, but yeah, at the same time, you kind of have to try at least for your own psychological preparedness. You have to do these exercises, I, I find at least. There was a person on Twitter that uh, was asking about hyper-Bitcoinization. And so when we're talking about this, you know, when does the forest light on fire? When does the avalanche actually fall in this very complex setup, right? When you think about a hyper-Bitcoinized world, are you thinking of it as so much of the population has been orange-pilled and they're now using Bitcoin? Or do you think of it from like what I guess the real question is, is what's the framework you're using to think through? All right, now we're in the hockey stick part of the curve and things are taking off. To me, the main thing that I look at or think about is just big pools of money converting to Bitcoin. And that usually means kind of a small percentage of the population. It doesn't mean that everybody has kind of like if you think about Argentina, there is. Back in the day, the number was like $50 billion worth of physical dollar bills circulating in the country. I think the last number I heard was maybe two or 300 billion. So that kind of thing where you have like an underground store of value that is maybe not even officially recognized, but that, you know, that that's the people used to talk about the offshore, like the offshore industry. And, and, and even President Obama identified Bitcoin as like an offshore bank account, right? And so there's, there's trillions of offshore money and now, and they have tried to crack down on this, but with Bitcoin, it's not even going to be in a physical location. It's not even going to be in a bank. It's going to be multi-sig over multiple continents. And so it's kind of going to go to the cloud. It's, it's going to, in a way, evaporate from the regulator's point of view. And, and I think institutional money has the know-how to do this, to manage this, to, and then pension funds will buy into it and insurance companies and, so yeah, I mean it'll it'll be this gradual process where the world bitcoinizes. I think yeah, there's going to be grassroots bitcoinization, but I think the big ones is going to be once we have that big blow up of the of the good old trusted fiat currencies like the British pound and and the euro and the dollar like once they become we get over say over 50% inflation in a year, who wants to store money in that? Even if it's a derivative, it's like, oh, it's a bond. It's like, yeah, but it pays out in a shit coin. Like, I don't want that. So I don't know. It's hard to predict, but that, that's, that's more what I look at is like, where are the, where's the big money going? Uh, when is the big money going into Bitcoin? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. 
I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. Is this something that just gradually continues to gain more and more market share? Or is it something that does have a hockey stick type event? There must be multiple hockey sticks. Literally, Bitcoin's melt up is because of the value transfer, right? It doesn't come out of thin air. Like It comes from somewhere. We have a lot of mark-to-market assets in the world that are overvalued, in my opinion, but so far kind of keeping each other afloat because everybody's in denial. But once they realize that the actual demand is way lower, well, that's when we see meltdowns. But then that money has to go somewhere. And I think concurrently, you get a melt up in Bitcoin. And it's going to go in phases because certain asset classes are going to break down before others. And you know, like like the yeah, like the, the meme stocks, like they they kind of broke down, and and the crypto, the shit coins, they kind of broke down. And but there's others that that people are still in denial about. So I think it'll be a series of you know the, the cyclicality is going to remain in Bitcoin. I think just like how even the the meltdown of the German mark was cyclical, like it wasn't a straight line either. So you came to Bitcoin. What year and at what price was your first purchase? So 2011 is when I started studying it. And then I recommended it in my newsletter to my in subscribers at five euros, technically five euros in uh, <laughs> first quarter of 2012. Yeah. Holy moly. We have first time listeners. We have people that are coming to Bitcoin for the first time. You've been through multiple hurricanes, right? When we, when we think about Bitcoin price action and the volatility what advice do you have to somebody who's maybe making their first transaction right now? We're at like 27000 and they're buying and they're saying, hey, all this makes sense. I'm going to buy a little bit of it. I'm going to put it on my balance sheet. I'm going to let it sit there as an insurance hedge against this chaos that they can understand is happening in the markets. But they're in for a ride. They're in for a very crazy ride. What advice do you have for these people having lived it for a decade? What can you say to them, Tur? First of all, I know I'm speaking to an audience, so I can't do that. But what I always try to do is listen first. Like, what are people's experiences? What are their doubts? What are their, you know, because there's always, this is so different that there's always a particular worries that come up. And I, I do try to address a number of those in, in the report. I think that Bitcoin is one of those things that really you benefit the more you understand it, because it, it that, that's why I've been studying it nonstop is because it gives me, it's so volatile, but it gives me peace of mind to have better understanding. And also like understanding Bitcoin, which you and I'm sure many other people can attest. Weirdly, by understanding Bitcoin, you better understand the world as well. Just by seeing that contrast of how things can be very different. But then like on a more practical level, something that I've noticed resonates with people is when I speak of Bitcoin as a potential insurance policy for your financial portfolio. And if you think about if you own a home, you have a homeowner's insurance. Traditionally, you pay about 0.25% per year of the value of the house for the insurance against fire and other disasters. And people accept that. It's, it's a reasonable expense to make. So you can think about your portfolios as similarly, it is subject to pretty existential threats over time. 
And so you could say like, okay, I'm going to insure my portfolio for 10 years. So two and a half percent of my portfolio, I'm now going to invest in Bitcoin. And that's my insurance against the proverbial house burning down. However, this is different from 10 years ago. Like in, in a way, the kitchen is already on fire, right? I mean, if you looked at your bond portfolio, it's down 30%, something like that. And in, in real terms, corrected for inflation. So of course, the insurance is more expensive. So in the report, I, I forget the exact number I use. I think I say maybe like between 5% of your portfolio. You know, if you invest that in Bitcoin, like that's, that's a way to think about it as an insurance you know, really solid insurance policy because it's not correlated with any of that stuff. And if anything, it's going to benefit from the instability of the system. It, like money is going to flow into Bitcoin the more things start looking badly in, in, the, in the world of fiat. So yeah, there, there's a few other scenarios I kind of go over, but I think it's important to understand why you're investing, right? Don't do it if you feel like you just want to place a bet, like just buy some weird new coin if you want to do that or you know buy a penny stock or something but i would just kind of urge people don't taint your experience with bitcoin by having that mentality of like i'm going to do a 5x on this rally like try to buy it and hold it for at least 5 years and just kind of see and then try to figure out the amount that would make you comfortable to do that right i mean maybe in the beginning it's very low and then as you learn more it grows a little bit but I've definitely learned to not try to badger people into buying Bitcoin. Like people come to Bitcoin when they're ready. It's been around for 14 years, but it's also been misunderstood by the media for 14 years. It's, you know, like people like Preston have done incredible at like spreading the word and helping kind of educate people and, and introducing people to um, not just the technology, but also the kind of people that are deeply involved in this new paradigm. So, yeah, I would say if you listen to this podcast, you're totally on the right track. Like, good for you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Just kind of expanding on your comment. So often you find people that get really excited when they first discover it and their position size far exceeds their competence to match the position size. And because it's so volatile, it, depending on where they buy it, sometimes you can go through a downturn and you didn't match your under your true understanding of, of like what this is with this oversized position and they get shaken out of it. And so I really appreciate your comment there because people need to, when, when they discover it, they're all excited. They need to buy a small position. Probably dollar cost average is the best way to really kind of remove that situation where you could have gotten too far over your ski tips and you don't really understand it enough to really grasp why you hold through such deep volatility. But yeah, just great advice, Tur. Right. Yeah, um, by the way, in the report, we also have a page talking about the difference between dollar cost averaging and lump sum and, and the different trade-offs that come with that because they, they matter in Bitcoin because it's so volatile. They have different outcomes. Usually, I would say people that have a more steady income and younger people tend to do great with dollar cost averaging. And if you're more like maybe you're retired and you have more of a fixed pool of assets, I think that's when you want to look at lump sum and how that works for you. Love that. All right. This is my last question for you. Is there any pet peeve or passion topic that you would love to address right now in 2023? I would say maybe very cliche sounding or, but in a financial context, kind of unorthodox is just this idea of slowing down and unplugging and like sitting in a chair and reading a book and kind of like doing it the way we did it before the internet. And because uh, I, I find it just very kind of unnerving how being hyper online tends to destabilize me. And I tend to make worse decisions if I do that. The ideas I come up with, both for like whatever writing project, but also investing wise, I tend to, they tend to be very cerebral and kind of like short sighted in hindsight. But then when I really unplug and I sometimes go into rabbit holes that seem to have nothing to do with what I should be doing, quote unquote. Weirdly, there's this meandering thing that then brings me exactly where I need to be. And like I come into these things that are totally out of the box and original and, and invigorating and exciting. And um, I don't know, it's all very, I guess I'm saying it because I've been in the Bitcoin space and this practice has helped me to like try not get stuck because also like when, you, when you're in your head a lot and you're hyper online, I think that's where the, you get that unrest. And I think you, sometimes people get shaken out of their positions just because of that. 
mm-hmm. even and then they build a story as to like oh no but it's this influencer is fear-mongering and like oh i need to it's like okay well when you plug out unplug and slow down then you have like you allow your brain to review the the fundamentals again let's go back like you know let's read some bastia right or let's read some of the old school economists or you know let's read some philosophy or so yeah and that's part of why i enjoy uh, like podcasts and audiobooks because you can kind of go out in nature and kind of you know be part of a you know at least in your mind be part of a conversation that is slow i love that point And I need to do the same. (laughs) That is fantastic. Well, next time I'm wherever you are at, we're happy to just go out on a walk and... I would love it. Well, I'll see you next week. I don't know how much time we're going to spend together, but... Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go to the beach or something. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The last uh, year we linked up there shortly with Bill Miller, which was really an exciting picture. What was it? 2017, I was interviewing Bill Sr. And he, after the interview, he, he shot me a note. He was like, can you connect me with Tur Meester? <laughs> I was like, yes, I can. And so then we linked up and well, we were with Bill Jr. when we saw each other in Miami wow. last week. Yeah, and the, it was the, honestly, so the, funny. The Miller plan, like, wow, they're like, they're building something for the long run. I'm, I'm really yeah. impressed with their analysis and what they're doing. Very, very, very steady. Very exciting. I was literally last week in Miami, had dinner with Bill Jr. And the first thing he said is, have you talked with Tur lately? was the first thing he said. So no, it's really fun. And looking forward to seeing you next week. This was a lot of fun. We're going to have links in the show notes to all of the articles that you've written historically. And Tur, can't thank you enough for coming on for all these years and always just sharing your deep knowledge on this particular topic. Is there anything else that you wanted to highlight uh, or point people towards? Nothing other than the report is entirely free. I, I want you to just download it. It's, it's perfect for printing and just sharing it on paper with, with whoever you want to share it with. It's really, um, it's, yeah, it was a labor of love and uh, I just want it to be seen by uh, a lot of people. That's exciting to me. I love it. And we will be sure to share it online and in the show notes. So thank you so much for making time, Tur. Thanks. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, If you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.